I love those resurrection accounts and that, that one that, that we read together in Luke this morning. I mean, you know, how do you pick, you know, which one is your favorite? And of course, they're all looking at things from a slightly different angle. Uh, sometimes over the years, I, I go through them and I, you know, try to put all the pieces together. But focusing in on Luke's account, as we did today, so many rich and wonderful things. Since Jesus rose from the dead, the sting of death has been taken away. Since Jesus rose from the dead, the debt my sins incurred has been paid. Since Jesus rose from the dead, everything is ultimately going to be all right. Think about that. Everything is going to be all right. All of the evil, all of the sadness and suffering, it's all going to be undone in the end. That's the promise of the resurrection. I'm intentionally using the word sense in reference to Jesus' resurrection. Sense in this context implies certainty. And Luke was, uh, he was concerned when he wrote his gospel. He was concerned that Theophilus, he, he was the person that Luke wrote to, he was concerned that Theophilus knew the certainty of the things that we believe. And we need to be certain today. And we can be certain today because these things did happen. And the passage here gives us a number of different witnesses to these facts. First of all, we have the angels. Then we have this group of women. Then we have the scriptures themselves. And then we have Jesus. And all of them are testifying to the certainty of these things. First of all, the angels. Look at these verses here for a moment. As the women came to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning. I love that description. Stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, this is the greatest question of all time, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
Don't you just love that? I remember as a kid, um, you know, back in those days, they always had Jesus movies around Easter time. And the greatest story ever told was one of those films that was made. And I don't know why it captivated me so much, but as a kid, I remember watching that film and I remember this moment and there it was, those angels there asked this question. And I think they said it in King James English. Why seek ye the living among the dead? But it stuck with me. It's just so profound. Why seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. And so here is this angelic testimony, but then they go on and they say, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Remember all the times as you read through the Gospels how Jesus tells them that over and over, but it never really, it never penetrated. They, they just, it couldn't grasp what he was talking about. And now suddenly, these women, being reminded by the angels, they remembered. And then the women themselves, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. You know, you got to love the honesty of the Gospels. They didn't believe it. It seemed... It just seemed impossible. But here's an interesting thing to note, I think. The fact that, that all the gospel writers record for us that it was these women who first discovered that the tomb was empty and it was these women that first proclaimed to the disciples the resurrection that in and of itself is significant because in the ancient world, among the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews, women could not testify in a court. Their word wasn't considered valid. But here, the gospel writers record that the women were the first at the tomb. And, and here's the point. If this, you would never put this in if you were making up a story that you wanted people to believe at this time. You would have left this out because everybody knew the testimony of women, as far as they were concerned, was invalid. So why is it here? It's here because it really happened. This is the way it happened. And that's the beauty of these 
these accounts of the resurrection. They're, they're just telling it like it is. And so the women testify. Most of the group, they just think, no, that this, this can't be. But Peter, we read concerning Peter, he got up and he ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, we know from John's gospel that John was part of that as well. So you see, like I said, sometimes you, it's good to sort of try to piece it all together. But Peter saw, and he's still a little bit perplexed, but he's, he's intrigued. John tells us this exact same account here, but John says that he himself actually understood at this point what had happened. And then we have the testimony of the scriptures. And so as we go on in the story and as Jesus joins the two men that are on the road to Emmaus, verse 17, he asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. <coughs> Jesus asking them the question, what things? And then they go on to tell him about Jesus of Nazareth. And then in verse 25, Jesus says to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And you just have to wonder, what, what were the things that Jesus pointed to? It says that he explained from, from Moses the prophets, all the scriptures later on. It includes the Psalms. I would think that Jesus might have started with Psalm, or excuse me, with Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is the story of the offering up of Isaac on Mount Moriah by Abraham. And many of us are familiar with that story. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice on a mountain that I will show you. And Abraham goes to that place. He goes to Mount Moriah. And there we know that at the last moment, when he's about to plunge the knife into Isaac, the Lord stops him. But you know, that story was a prophecy. That was a picture. Abraham was a prophet and he was living out. He was acting out what God himself would do when God would take his son, his only son whom he loved, Jesus, and he would offer him on a mountain, the very mountain that Isaac was almost sacrificed on is the mountain that Jesus died on 2,000 years later. Amazing. 
And I wonder if Jesus might have told him about that. Or perhaps the 12th chapter of Exodus, the story of the Passover, reminding them of how uh, their ancestors were in bondage in Egypt and how the Lord liberated them and how he instructed them to take that lamb and to slay that lamb and to put the blood over the doorpost of their homes and how Jesus then would have told them that that lamb was a picture of who he was and what he had done, the lamb of God who takes away not the sin of Israel merely, but the sin of the world. Maybe the 22nd Psalm was expounded to them. That, that Psalm where David, 1,000 years before the time of Jesus, he says that they pierced my hands and my feet. They divided my garments among them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, they would have known that those things happened. They had just perhaps witnessed much of that. And then I would think that he would definitely point them to Isaiah 53. Speaking of the servant of the Lord who was wounded for our transgressions, who was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. And then I would imagine he must have touched on Psalm 16, the promise you will not allow your Holy One. You will not leave your Holy One in the grave nor allow his body to undergo decay. The scriptures were the witness that day. And then Jesus himself, as we see here in the story. Jesus himself, he appears to them finally. And his first words to them are, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So Jesus himself is testifying of himself. Touch me and see. We know from John's account, we know that Thomas was the one who wasn't there initially. And later on, Thomas having heard this event happen, but he said, I will not believe it. I, no, it, I, I just won't believe it. Unless I put my, my hand into the wound on his hands and my hand into the wound on his side, I will not believe. And remember, a week later, Jesus appears again and he says, Thomas, here's my hands, here's my side. Be no longer unbelieving. But here in Luke's account, it's interesting. It says, 
when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Why does Luke even record this? It does not seem a bit odd. You're in the midst of this moment of revelation. Jesus is, you know, touch me and see a, a, a ghost does not have flesh and bones. By the way, is there anything to eat? <laughs> and there's a reason for this. Because he wanted to make it absolutely certain that he was indeed there in flesh and bones. Because a spirit does not eat. Because, of course, people would come throughout the centuries and say, oh, well, you know, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead bodily. You know, it's a spiritual resurrection. Of course, yes, he rose, but no, his, his body remained uh, in the ground. It was stolen or something like that. People have said these things over the years. But all of these evidences were built right into the text. There's one more witness to draw to your attention. And it's not in the text necessarily, but maybe it is in the text. It's transformed lives. This is one of the greatest testimonies to the reality of the risen Christ. Transformed lives. And it is in the text because one of the people in the text is a woman named Mary Magdalene. And we know a little bit about her. We've read about her in the gospel accounts. And, and we know that Mary was the one who on that morning, after the events we read here with the ladies coming to the tomb, Mary lingered behind when they went back to tell the others. Mary lingered and Jesus met her. But you know what we're also told about Mary? We're told that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. Wow. Demon possession was such a horrific experience. People's lives just completely under the control of these dark forces. And, and this woman, Mary... However it happened, she had come under the, the power and the control of the devil. And Jesus delivered her. And her life was forever changed. And she's one story among millions upon millions upon millions. You know, when people, skeptics maybe, or maybe even an honest inquirer says, well, how do you know that Jesus really did rise from the dead? Well, you know, you could just say, I know because I met him. I know because he's come into my life. I know because he has changed me. I know because I am not the person that I 
once was. And everybody around me will testify that I'm not the person that I once was. And all throughout the world today and all throughout history, going back to this moment in history, you have millions upon millions of lives that have gone through radical transformations. And the one common denominator is the person, Jesus. And so nobody would ever convince me that a dead man could have that kind of influence and impact. He must be alive. And that's what we're here to proclaim today. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Amen. So final point, how does this become a reality to any who have not yet experienced it? Because this transformation, this, and not just transformation, but let me just add this, this hope, this confidence. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ today, what hope do you possibly have? What hope do you hold out for the world? What hope do you hold on to when you think about the end of your life? What, what is there? I can't really see much of anything. But the hope that we have in Jesus that he conquered the grave and that he set in motion with his resurrection a, a new creation and that one day everything will be all right. But how does that become my own personal experience? Well, Jesus said it. Finally, as he spoke to them in verse 45, he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the, the problem is sin. Sin causes us to be spiritually dead, so we have no experience with God. Sin separates us from God. And so that life of God is not experienced by us. But what the cross and resurrection are all about is the forgiveness of sins. And how are our sins forgiven? Through repentance. And what is repentance? It simply means to turn. It means to turn. It's, a, it's an invitation to turn toward Jesus. Your life has been marked perhaps of 
of uh, walking uh, in the opposite direction as fast as you could go. Or maybe occasionally you sort of think to turn, but then you kind of, you're just stuck on that path. But today, if you will just turn, if you will just turn to him, repentance, that's it, turning to him. And what happens? The forgiveness of sins. Our sins are forgiven. The barrier is removed. We're reconciled to God. His spirit takes up residence in us. We are regenerated and given a new life. And that's the basis for the millions of stories that we could find all over the world today. And so if you have not turned and received the Lord, do that today. It'll be the best moment of your life. And it'll be the beginning of an entirely new life that will never end. And because Jesus rose, everything ultimately will be all right. So Lord, we thank you that we are here worshiping a living Savior. We thank you, Lord, that just as was declared in the scriptures throughout all the centuries that you came accordingly and you did exactly what the scriptures said you would do to that very point of rising from the dead and conquering death. And Lord, this morning I would just pray if there's anyone who needs today to repent, to turn to you. May you help them to do that, that they might know the life that you came to give, the life that is everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.